Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is all about the heart. If you like something that you're listening to, connect with us. Follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen or HH Talk Radio. And you can even tweet at us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. We are talking about something today that I think is really important to human happiness. And that is the ability to be an artful negotiator, to create winning situations for the people with whom we are engaged in life. After all, we are interconnected and interdependent, and we must never forget that. William Urey is the co-founder of Harvard's program on negotiation. He is one of the world's best-known and most influential experts on the Art of Negotiation. He is the co-author of Getting to Yes, the best-selling negotiation book in the world, which I have read a long time ago and love, and has taught negotiation to tens of thousands of people around the world. He has served as a mediator in conflicts ranging from boardroom battles to labor strikes and from family feuds to civil wars. His newest book is Getting to Yes with Yourself and Other Worthy Opponents. Good morning, William. Thanks for joining us. It's a real pleasure, Lisa. Oh, it's, it, it's, it's a delight to have you here. Let's talk about how you leveraged your experience in mediating, mediating boardroom battles, labor strikes, civil wars, etc., um, and brought it to a very personal experience, the, to the domain of self, how to get to yes within ourselves. Well, yes. Uh, 
After Roger Fisher and I wrote Getting the Yes many years ago, maybe the most common question I received from people was, okay, I want to get to yes, but what if the other side, my partner, my, my colleague, uh, they don't want to get to yes? And so what if they're being difficult? So I wrote a book later on, many years later, called Getting Past No, about how you negotiate with difficult people or in difficult situations. But over the years, it gradually dawned on me that actually perhaps the most difficult person we ever have to deal with, in other words, the person who creates the greatest obstacles to our own satisfaction, to our own happiness, as it were, is not the person on the other side of the table, however difficult they may be. It's ourselves. It's, it's, we are our own worst opponent. And that gives us the opportunity to become our own best ally. And that if we can get to yes with ourselves first uh, and reach that kind of inner satisfaction, it becomes a lot easier for us to deal with other people in however difficult a situation it might be. In your latest book, Getting to Yes with Yourself and Other Worthy Opponents, you talk about six fundamental steps of the inner yes method that can help us get there to that affirmative place with ourselves and others. Can you just sort of unpack those six points for us? For sure. And I'll just begin by saying there's a foundation to all of this, to all six steps, which is... Uh, I call it the ability to go to the balcony. And it's almost as if you're dealing, you're talking with that other person. And incidentally, when I talk about negotiation, I'm not just referring to what most people think of as you know, like formal negotiations. You're in a sales or it's a labor negotiation. But I'm talking about the everyday experience we all have. Every single one of us is a negotiator every single hour of the day, whether we're negotiating with our ch- dealing with our child or our spouse or our partner or a person on the street or another driver. I mean, in the broader sense of the term, we're, we're negotiating. In other words, trying to reach agreement on some issue, however small, you know, most of our time. And so uh, to me, the foundation of being able to get to the yes that we want, in other words, the kinds of agreements, the kinds of healthy relationships we want with others, is this ability to imagine that it's almost like you're on a stage And part of you, part of your mind goes to a mental and emotional uh, balcony overlooking that stage. The balcony is a place of perspective. It's a place of calm. It's a place of clarity. It's a place where you can keep your eyes on the prize, on what is truly most important to you. And to me, the foundation of being able to get to yes with yourself is this ability to go to the balcony. And we all have many ways of doing it. Some of us may take a moment of silence, some of us may meditate, some of us may go for a walk, some of us may go for uh, a tea or coffee with a friend, but we all need ways to constantly in our lives to go to the balcony. Why? Because we're reaction machines. We tend to react often under stress, and particularly in these days, you know, with so many things going on simultaneously, we tend to react in ways that don't serve our interests, hence the importance of going to the balcony. Mm. So put yourself in time out. That's what I hear you saying. That's it. <laughs> That's Give absolutely yourself a little it. minute. That's it. <laughs> Step one, time out. 
That's step, it. Step two. Step two is, uh, you know, in negotiation, in getting the yes, you know, what I've been teaching for a long time is, you know, maybe the single most important skill. People ask me, you know, what's the most important thing that you need when you're trying to get to yes with someone? And, you know, if I had to pick one, I usually pick, well, it's the ability to put yourself in their shoes and understand the way they see and feel the situation. Because after all, negotiation is an exercise in influence. You're trying to change the other side's mind. How can you possibly change their mind if you don't know where their mind is? So put yourself in their shoes. It also shows respect. So it's, it, it goes a long ways. But what I found is it's actually very hard for us, particularly in conflict situations, to put ourselves in the other side's shoes. We're so wrapped up in our problems, we can't focus on their problem, as, mu- as important as that might be. So the problem is, the obstacle again, is ourselves. And what I've found, curiously enough, is that the key to putting yourself in the other side's shoes is, interestingly enough, to put yourself in your own shoes first. I mean, that sounds funny because after all, are we not already in our own shoes? But how many of us can honestly say that we listen empathetically to our needs, our feelings, uh, what we most want, the way that a good friend would? Instead, what I find is we have this little critical voice, this inner critic inside of us that's always putting us down, saying, you did that wrong, that's not going to work, and so on, you know. There's an old saying that if we talk to our friends the way we talk to ourselves, we wouldn't have any. (laughs) So the key to me is this ability to put ourselves in our own shoes, to listen to ourselves, to figure out what we want. That's the key to uh, getting to yes with yourself. And I think you make a very, very valuable point that it, it, it requires that we go to the balcony or put ourselves in timeout, whatever, whatever terminology or image works for the individual. So you can tap into this place of really deciphering what it is that you want to really understand that the mind chatter that goes on in so many of our minds are, they're just thoughts and not necessarily the desires or wants or needs of the situation. That's absolutely it. I find, I mean, so often, particularly in conflictual situations, and we have these kind of daily conflicts and tensions and difficult conversations all the time, uh, you know, we get wrapped up in our thoughts and our feelings. You know, often, you know, we, we're governed by anger uh, or by fear. And as the old saying goes, when angry, you will make the best speech you will ever regret. <laughs> and that happens more often than not, I'm afraid. Yeah, and I also believe and witness that we can't always believe everything we think and feel. That's it. That's it. And that's why if you can take a balcony perspective, if that's the kind of the foundation, then you're able to recognize your anger, your fear, your thought, and you even have a dialogue with it, but you realize it's not you. It's that's that's the part of you that's acting on the stage, but but by the part of you that's watching it, that's witnessing it, that's observing it, you're able to to neutralize its effect on you by simply recognizing it. You talk about developing your inner batna. Um, what is the batna, and where does this power come from? Well, your batna in negotiation. This is the secret to power. You know, how, where, where does power come from in negotiation? In other words, I'm not saying power over the other side, but power to actually satisfy your interests, to get what you need. Uh, 
Interestingly enough, in negotiation, maybe the central source of power is what we call your BATNA, your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. It's, a, it's an acronym. And, uh, and so it's like, you know, it's, it's your alternative, your walkaway alternative. If you can't reach agreement with one customer, for example, it might be, I've got another customer. If you can't reach agreement on one job, maybe you've got another job. Having that alternative gives you confidence and gives you power. What I found is actually there's a psychological antecedent to your BATNA, which I call your inner BATNA, which is <laughs> your own ability to tell yourself, to reassure yourself that no matter what, you will take care of your core psychological needs, that you're not wholly dependent on the other side. And when you're not wholly dependent on the other side, then you can relax, you have more power, and you're going to negotiate a lot more effectively if you know that inside yourself you have that confidence and where does that confidence come from ultimately it comes from within Mm. boom there it is do me a favor and repeat the uh definition of the acronym batna for our listeners yeah batna is best alternative to a negotiated agreement it's your your batna it's a really useful term think about before you go into any situation what's my alternative how am I going to, what's my best course of action if I cannot reach agreement with the other side? If you know you have an alternative, you're going to be a lot more relaxed, a lot more confident, and you're going to negotiate more confidently. Developing that, knowing that both your inner BATNA, your own ability to meet your own core needs, and your outer BATNA will serve you greatly. We are going to negotiate ourselves over for a quick break. To learn more, please visit www.williamury.com, on Facebook, William Uri, G-T-Y, and on Twitter, the handle is at William Uri, G-T-Y. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Love is in the air, in the whisper of the tree. Love is in the air, in the thunder of the sea. Welcome back. 
to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are talking about the art of negotiation today. And with me in the studio is William Urey, co-founder of Harvard's program on negotiation. He is also the author, one of the co-authors of Getting to Yes, as well his most recent is Getting to Yes with Yourself and Other Worthy Opponents, published by Harper One in 2015. So it's brand spanking new. William, to carry on our conversation coming out of the BATNA, Best Alternative to a Negotiated Agreement, um, you talk about another um, step is reframing the picture. Let's talk about that. Maybe the greatest power, Lisa, one of the greatest powers we have as a negotiator is the ability to reframe. In other words, change the way that change the but change the game. Basically, if you want to change the game in negotiation from you know an adversarial argument into a win-win, uh, constructive problem-solving, let's solve the problem, let's heal the relationship. If you want to change the game. That maybe the best way is to change the frame, to change the way in which the you know, to change, for example, from being on opposite sides of a table as opponents glaring across the table to you're both on the same side of the table, you know, jointly tackling the problem rather than attacking each other. So if you want to reframe that, that's the key. But people find it very hard, particularly when in difficult situations. And again, what I find is. There's a missing piece that is inside of us, which is our own ability to reframe the picture. Because we can, for example, I think it was Albert Einstein who once said that the most important question that any of us has to answer in our lives is, is the universe friendly? Now, why would Albert Einstein ask that question? Because (laughs) in the wake of World War II and the creation of nuclear weapons, he was worried that if we saw we framed the world as unfriendly, then we would naturally see everyone as our adversary and we would arm ourselves to the teeth. And with nuclear weapons, we would put an end to life on earth. Uh, We would react at the first provocation. If, however, we can see the universe as basically friendly, even in the midst of adversity, that, you know, life is basically on our side. You know, if we can choose, it's, it's a matter of choice. You know, we can choose to see, who knows what the universe actually is, but we can choose to see life as basically friendly. Then we're likely to treat others as potential partners rather than as implacable adversaries. And we're much more likely to be able to get to us. And I think the point you have just brought up is probably one of the most valuable tools that we can use for life, to have a happy life. That if we have the ability to reframe our circumstances, to see challenges as opportunities, to know that there is a solution for every problem, we are going to just have a much better um, adventure going through this this thing we call life. Absolutely. And if I can just give a a kind of a quick personal example from my family, Um, to me, one of the best teachers of this is my 16-year-old daughter, Gabby. I mean, she, she was born 16 years ago with an enormous number of congenital structural anomalies in her body that affected her legs, her organs, and so on. She went through 15 major surgeries. But she 
has never let that stop her from seeing life is basically on her side. She wakes up every day. She wants to make the best of it, have fun, and she doesn't let anything get in her way. And like, for example, a year ago, she announced to us, you know, she always wanted to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. And she said she was going to go for the Guinness World Record for the plank. Do you know what the plank is? It's a... um, No, a yoga pose. It's a yoga (laughs) pose. It's a yoga pose where you kind of you know, stretch out your body on the ground, you lift it up on your elbows and you try to hold it rigid for as long as you can. And I can do it for about a minute or two. Gabby sent away for the world record for women, which at that moment was 40 minutes. And she went into training and, you know, and by, by golly, on her birthday, on her 16th birthday, her birthday party surrounded by everyone, if she didn't go for an hour and 20 minutes, and she is now in the Guinness Book of World Records. I mean, that's her ability to reframe, to reframe life as being on her side. No obstacles in the way. Wow. This is a fantastic story. And we need to bottle your daughter's uh, determination and, and, and joy because this is, this is serious. This is exactly what we're talking about. That's it. And if you want, she has a, a TED Talk. You just uh, Google Gabi, G-A-B-I, Yuri, U-R-Y. And TED Talk, and you'll see her own account of her own story. But it's it's a wonderful example of the ability to reframe. Let's give Gabby Yuri another plug here. The TED Talk. Uh, and what's the name of her talk? Uh, it's called "What's Wrong with Me?" Absolutely nothing. Wow. Fantastic. I'm writing it down. What's wrong with me? Absolutely nothing. I would say it's you know, and the reframe is to now ask what's right with me. You know, that's maybe it. that's that's where we're headed in this conversation, you know? That's it. So we've got reframing the picture and now staying in the zone. More easily said than done, I think. Absolutely. But, you know, athletes, artists know that, you know, there's a state of flow when you're at your best, when you're at your happiest. And, and that applies also to daily negotiation with others. That's uh, if we're able to stay in the zone. And what that means is... In, in, in negotiation and conflicts generally, we focus often on the past. You did this, you did that, you know, past resentments and so on. Or we focus on the future. You know, we're worried that the other person is going to do this. And yet the only place where we can actually affect the situation for the better is in the present moment. So our ability to do all the previous steps, to go to the balcony, which puts you in a kind of zone, the ability to put ourselves in our own shoes, the ability to develop our own inner Batman and have that inner confidence, the ability to reframe actually prepares us to do what is, as you mentioned, very difficult, which is to stay in the zone, that place of power and presence and satisfaction that allows us to do our best. I think we should mention something about the the importance of staying in the zone or staying in the present moment. And when I work with clients, I mention this and their eyes always light up when I share that 99.9 tenths percent of the time, the present moment is actually okay. Okay to good or great. That's it. That's absolutely it because, uh, you know, our problems are either in the past or in their imagined future, but they're rarely in that exact moment of the present. Which is that it, which makes the present moment, you know, they say, well, it's the gift. You know, that's why they, they, they call it the present, you know, and it is safe. And when we can remind ourselves that, especially when we are negotiating with ourselves or with others, I think that that does um, 
leverage our ability to be more clear. Absolutely. I mean, that's to me, if, if there's a lesson I've learned in life, it may be that it's like, you know, in life, we're destined to lose many, many things, you know, everything, practically, including our own lives, ultimately. But one thing make sure not to lose, which is the present, because that's nothing else is worth it. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay, moving on. How about respect? It makes me want to like, you know, shout out that Aretha song. You know, but how important is respect to this equation of getting to yes with ourselves? Well, you know, this is one of the things I've learned in my, you know, many, many decades of working with human beings in conflict is that um, is that something as elemental as respect, respecting the other, um, you know, giving them positive regard doesn't mean necessarily agreeing with them. It doesn't mean doing what they want. It doesn't mean obeying them. It just means kind of recognizing their basic dignity. That that may be the cheapest concession you can make in a negotiation. It costs you nothing, and it means everything to them. And so what makes it hard for us to give that basic respect to others, uh, you know, when they may not be respecting us, they, whatever it is, is what gives us that ability is if we can give ourselves respect. Uh, respect begins with self-respect and all of these steps up to now have been about giving us that self-respect that self-satisfaction that self-sufficiency that then allows us to to change the game from you know they reject us we reject them they disrespect us we disrespect them no someone's got to change that game and it can be us if we start respecting them they're more likely to be able to respect us I'm thinking of the work of Dr. Carl Rogers, who, for many people who may not know, was one of the first humanistic psychologists. And in the 60s, I think it was he who coined the phrase the, of, of unconditional positive regard, of holding that space of respect for another person simply because they are alive, simply because they are here. I Yeah, it's absolutely true. I had the great privilege of knowing him and uh, working with him at one moment, and, uh, and he, he exemplified that, that very simple but powerful human principle of giving the other unconditional positive regard, respect. Respect means to look again, to give the other person a second look, to actually see the human being behind the words, behind the feelings, behind the bad behavior, whatever, see the human being there. And this is the, the, the sweet spot in all of this, where it ties back into what we mentioned when we opened the show about that interconnectedness and interdependence on one another, that when we can see that little light in the other person, although we may not agree with them, and even when we're negotiating with our own self, um, we can soften because the, our desires are more universal, we're more aligned than not actually in what we want from our lives. That's it. That's absolutely it. And then you go on to talk about the importance of giving and receiving, creating a cooperative dynamic. Yeah, this is the key because so often, you know, when we feel things are scarce, you know, we tend, our instinct is to take, take. And yet it's exact opposite move that's required to change the game, which is to give. In other words, to give our gifts, give our talents, uh, help the other side. If we can help the other side, they're more likely to be able to help us. And we begin a virtuous circle of giving and receiving that allows us to go for more than a win-win. 
Because to me, the, the ultimate goal is to go for a triple win, a win-win-win. In other words, a win for yourself and your own happiness, a win for the other, but also a win for the larger whole, whether that's the family, the workplace, the community, or ultimately the world. And the key to doing that is the art of cultivating the art of giving, of actually reaching out, cooperating with the other side. And that's not easy in, in a lot of situations, but, it's, but all the steps up till now, being able to go to the balcony, develop, you know, put yourself in your shoes, develop your inner batna, reframing, staying in the zone, respecting the other, set us up to do the ultimate, which is to go for a win-win-win outcome that is good for everyone. And this leads us to the ultimate goal, which is the generosity of spirit and the strength of heart. That's it. That's, that, that's it. It's, uh, and, it, and it goes back to what you said in the very beginning, which is happiness, true happiness, is something that's not selfish. It's actually something that includes us, includes our own satisfaction, but actually is the most wonderful gift we can give others because it's more likely we're more likely to get to yes with them. They're more likely to be happy, and everyone is more likely to be happy. And, you know, that starting with that inner happiness, that inner peace, is maybe the best tool to get to outer peace. Mm. Beautifully said. William Urey. To learn more, please visit www.williamurey.com on Facebook, William Urey GTY, and on Twitter at William Urey GTY. Oh my goodness. The newest book is Getting to Yes with Yourself and Other Worthy Opponents. Run, don't walk to buy this book. I am going to be doing the same. William, you are a delight. Thank you for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. A real pleasure, Lisa. And I wish you and all your listeners much success in getting to yes with yourself and others. Indeed. Indeed. Like the reflection that's in the mirror. I think that's where we want to start. Great. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Saturday afternoons on 97.5. Joy riding the coast with a global vibe, pleasing your ears and inspiring your mind. Joy riding the coast with me, Lisa Cypress Cayman. Saturdays, 2 to 5, on 97.5. KBU and RadioMalibu.net. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the business of ourselves. We're talking about how important it is to be at home in our bodies, to be able to um, achieve and maintain that flow state, that state of genuine rapture where we're very engrossed in uh, what we are doing. It's a, it's a state of passion, place, purpose, meaning, all the things that we talk about on this show. And my next guest has quite a bit of experience researching and writing about these subjects and more. Stephen Kotler is a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist and co-founder and director of research for the Flow Genome Project. He is one of the world's leading experts on ultimate human performance. He is the author of several books, including Bold, The Rise of Superman, and his latest book, which I'm really excited to talk with him about, Tomorrowland. His writings have been translated into, into over 40 languages, and he's appeared in more than 80 publications, including the New York Times, Atlantic Monthly, Forbes, Wired, and Time. He writes uh, Far Frontiers, a blog about science and culture for Forbes.com. And along with his wife, author Joy Nicholson, he is also the co-founder of Rancho de Chihuahua, a dog sanctuary in the northern mountains of New Mexico. And whenever possible, he can be found hurling himself down mountains at high speeds. And I want to definitely check in about that. (laughs) Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's got to get shorter somehow. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it is a really good mouthful and one that I'm very proud to read and, and, and talk about um, because you've done so many different things. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely piqued about Rancho de Chihuahua and hurling yourself down the mountain. So we must definitely get to that. But let's jump into um, just refining for our listeners this, what flow state is and is it the same as being in the air-quoted zone? For sure. It's a great place to start. Um, and you are correct. There are tons of synonyms, flow states, peak experiences, being in the zone, runner's high. If you're a jazz musician, you call it being in the pocket. Basketball players use being unconscious. Uh, stand-up comics have a great one, which is the forever box. But the term scientists prefer is flow, and it's technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness, right? A state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And, you know, more colloquially, it's those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. We get so focused on the task at hand that everything else disappears. Time passes strangely. It can slow down. It can speed up. Our sense of self vanishes. Action and awareness merge. And throughout, all aspects of performance, so both mental and physical, go through the roof. You know, it's also been known to be called the sweet spot, you know, where you're just in that place where in that particular moment, life is absolutely perfect. And the sweet spot is actually something of a, of a technical term when you start kind of getting into flow hacking, right? How to create more flow in our lives. Flow sort of sits in this sweet spot between anxiety and boredom or uh, when the challenge, the task at hand, right? Whatever we're doing, we're trying to lose ourselves in, slightly exceeds our skill set. We have to stretch but not snap. When you're in that sweet spot, it drives attention and attention drives flow. And can we harness flow? Is there a way to actually, um, you know, sort of go to work step by step to create Absolutely. and harness that flow state? Absolutely. Um, 
And you, before we get there, let me just let me throw some ridiculously gross numbers at you that are really hard to believe. McKinsey did a 10-year study. They found top executives in flow are 500% more productive. In a study run by the U.S. military, they found flow's impact on learning, accelerated learning, 250 to 500%. So it could, flow can cut those 10,000 hours to mastery in half. Creativity in, in research done by the Flow Genome Project by, by my organization we found is boosted 500 to 700% in flow. So it's a massive dramatic change, right? It's very important. So the big question, of course, is, is it hackable? Can we get more of it? Can we control it? What is going on? What's happened in the past 25 years is neuroscience has advanced so quickly, and we've gotten so good at looking into the brain that for the very first time, we really have kind of started to understand where is flow coming from, what's causing it. And as a result, we've been able to work backwards into how can we train people up in it. And this is, you know, exactly what we do at the Flow Genome Project. In fact, you know, just at, our, at, a, at a really low level, to give you an idea of how trainable this really is, we do a uh, digitally delivered Flow Fundamentals class. It's online. It's six weeks long. It's about an hour and a half uh, per week with some homework. We've put 500 people through the class. It's only been around about a year and a half. Um, but we've put about 500 people through the class in that period. And on average, afterwards, they're reporting a five-fold increase in flow, a five-fold increase in creativity, and a three-fold increase in self-confidence. So it is actually readily trainable. Well, you, you said something earlier that just has sort of floored me about cutting the uh, the time period to achieve uh, yeah. mastery status, outlier status from 10,000 hours in half. That is astounding. It is astounding. It's sort of... so. Flow, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but flow is this huge, enormous cocktail of, of five very potent neurochemicals. It's one of the causes of it. A short, quick shorthand for learning and memory is the more neurochemicals that show up during experience, the better chance that experience will move from short-term holding into long-term storage, right? Neurochemicals, one of the things they do is they sort of act as big neon signs over experience, saying, hey, crucially important, save for later. As a result, because flow is this huge dump of neurochemicals, it's one of the biggest kind of dumps of these neurochemicals you can get, maybe the biggest, um, all at once. It immediately drops things into memory. So one of the and, and you, we've all had this experience, by the way. If you close your eyes and you think back to kind of the best, go like decade by decade through your life and go, what are the three best times I can remember? Good chance a couple of those times are going to be flow states because of these neurochemicals because they lock things down. So what we've now discovered is that we can use this to our advantage to massively, massively train up learning. Mm. Well, this is pretty delicious. I mean, that's the word that comes to mind. It's like, sign me up, you know, sign me up for Flow Hackers uh, United because <laughs> that's just a great place to be. It does, uh, it does unlock some really interesting, interesting things. It does, you know, it really allows us to kind of get a view of, of what might be possible for ourselves. And you have what's called the Flow Dojo. Talk about it. So one of the things that, one of the things that has allowed us to do all this research has been uh, kind of this crazy, you know, action adventure sports, so surfing, skiing, rock climbing, downhill mountain biking, all those kind of things. These, the folks in these sports have gotten extremely good at hacking flow, maybe some of the best ever. And as a result, there's been kind of nearly exponential growth in ultimate human performance within these sports. So these sports have advanced faster and farther than any other sports in the history.
history of the world, right? We've come farther in these sports in the past 25 years than most sports have gone in 500 years. It's insane. And it's because these guys have gotten very good at hacking flow. And one of the reasons this is is because their sports are packed with flow triggers, things that drive attention into the present moment and kind of trigger this neurochemical release. A lot of people want access to flow. They don't want to put their lives on the line doing action and adventure sports to get it. So what we've done is we've created an environment um, that mimics a lot of the inputs that action and adventure sports athletes rely on to drive flow, but we've removed all the danger. So our, anybody from kind of age 10 to age 70 can play on our equipment totally safely, scalable, uh, scalable, you can get on at whatever level you're at, but it drives people into flow very, very quickly. We also can wire people up with all kinds of new cutting-edge sensors and EEGs. We're data-gathering along the way, which is kind of creating this feedback loop. We're driving people into flow. We're gathering data, which is allowing us to drive them deeper into flow. just goes on and on and on, and that's sort of what we're bringing into the world is, is the Flow Dojo, both as a training center and a research center. So the Flow jo- Dojo is a physical uh, facility. It's a physical space that one would come to or a virtual yes, one? It is a, it, there, there will be probably over the next couple of years, there will be about four or five of them scattered throughout uh, America in one kind of traveling road show. Phenomenal. This is, this is terrific. Let's give our listeners um, some quick flow hacks. Well, the first thing to know is, as I said, flow follows focus. It's what happens when we drive attention into – the current moment. So, the, I mean, the best flow hack to start with is what they call the golden rule for flow, which is what I kind of mentioned at the beginning, which is flow sits, this kind of challenge skill sweet spot. So one of the easiest ways to drive flow is to approach the task at hand, to like let, push yourself in everything you do a little bit harder than you normally would, right? Flow takes place in that spot where we start to get uncomfortable. We're outside of our skill set. So risk is a really great flow trigger. And this can be physical risk like the athletes take. Social risk works really, really well. Intellectual, creative, you can can use risk that way. Uh, When we encounter overwhelming complexity, uh, that also can drive us into flow. When we encounter, when you look up and you see kind of a night sky, millions of stars and all those stars represent galaxies and you start to really think about that it sort of overloads the conscious mind kicks us over into the subconscious and kind of drives us into flow so anytime you're encountering a lot of novelty so that's why travel produces a lot of flow um a lot of complexity what happens when you go stand on the edge of the grand canyon you feel awe right you get sucked into the moment it's the front edge of a flow state um these are really easy flow triggers Indeed they are. And I, I think it's important to paraphrase something that you just said. Um, risk-taking and complexity also translate to um, increasing one's ability to tolerate distress. So it's boosting your resilience because when we typically um, encounter something that is uncomfortable or a bit of a stretch for us, um, the first reaction may be to um, shy away or constrict. And what you're suggesting is that we lean into this experience because once we do, we begin to expand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things we say a lot at the Flow Genome Project is it's impossible to do this work. And actually, let me rephrase it. Not only is it impossible, it's actually very dangerous um, to do to, to work on this stuff without a lot of emotional fortitude. You need some grit. Flow, for example, is a, there's a cycle. You're not always in flow. You have to move through a four-stage cycle. A couple of those stages are very unpleasant. They're very uncomfortable. You have to 
be able to manage your emotions. You have to be gritty to do this work. Absolutely. I'm going to suggest that you hang on for one second um, and let's be gritty and get through the break together. And we'll come back and we'll talk about those four stages. Um, to learn more about Stephen Kotler and his amazing work, please visit stephencotler.com on Facebook. He is at stephen.kotler.3. And on Twitter, on Twitter, that handle is at Kotler Stephen. And if you're interested in the Flow Genome Project, please visit www.flowgenomeproject.com. Here come those tunes. We will be right back. Like happiness is the truth Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast and share it. Why? Because it's kind, it's free, it's legal. And we're, we're talking with Stephen Kotler today about something very exciting. We're talking about flow state and ways that we can increase that state of rapture and deliciousness in the present moment. We're also going to talk about his new book, Tomorrowland, in a couple of minutes. But first, let's, Stephen, let's revisit the four steps to flow. We started about that. We started in with that before the break. For sure. Um, and this is, this is kind of groundbreaking research, right? For a really long time, we thought flow was a binary. It worked like a light switch. You're either in the zone or not. We now know, and a lot of this work was done by Herb Benson at Harvard, um, we now know that flow is a four-stage cycle. It starts with a struggle phase. It's a loading phase. You are kind of loading and overloading the brain with information. This is where you're training up skills, right? You're learning, learning skills. Flow may, you know, shrink down the learning cycle, but you still have to do the hard work of skill acquisition, and, you know, nobody can do your push-ups for you. So this is the stage where you're doing your push-ups, and it's very unpleasant. That kicks into release, where you literally have to take your mind off the problem. Uh, you have to distract yourself. You need The brain needs to kind of take turn the problem over from the conscious mind to the subconscious mind. That's sort of what happens in flow. And to do that, you have to stop thinking about it. So low-grade physical exercise works here. Albert Einstein used to like to row a boat into the middle of Lake Geneva and stare at the clouds. I like to go for long walks with my dogs or garden. 
anything like that works really, really well. Um, and when that happens, brain comes off the problem, stress hormones leave the body, feel good, feel good cocktail, uh, performance enhancing cocktail floods into the body, you get kicked into flow, which is the third stage of the cycle. Um, huge up, you feel like Superman, you do amazing things. And on the back side of that up, you've got to pay the piper. There's a huge down, right? Those neurochemicals that produce the highs of flow are expensive for the brain to produce and the body to produce. So you burn through them after a little period. So there's a refractory period on the back end, and it's meant to recover. You really need one of the, a lot of the work we do. We do a lot of work with kind of U.S. special forces and really high-powered executives and really high-functioning companies. And a lot of their gaps is not they know how to get into flow really, really well. What they don't know is how to recover on the back end. And if you don't recover properly, you can't restart the flow cycle. So literally, like not getting enough sleep is enough to keep you out of flow for a while. And that was the word that just popped into my mind. And this is, uh, we are a sleep deprived society. And this may explain why this flow cycle for many of us is something that's hard to complete fully on a regular basis. Give you a crazy statistic. They looked at, I can't remember where, which university they did it at right now. I just blanked it, but they looked at baseball teams over a 10 year period and they were looking at sleeplessness and they were using jet lag for sleeplessness. So Teams that had to travel three time zones to play a game, before they even like swung a bat or threw the first pitch, they only had a 40% chance of winning. That's the wow. impact that sleep depri- deprivation has on performance. Well, it's the you know the the proverbial home team advantage. You know, if you're not mm-hmm. if you don't have to uh, travel, if you don't have to place yourself in in a stressful position, you're conserving your resources. Also. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about Tomorrowland, which is your newest book. It has uh, just was just released, and this is um, an am- amazing book. And let's talk about why you call our world a brave new world. Well, it's Tomorrowland. I, you know, I started out as a journalist actually, and for the for, for almost twenty five years, and I, you know, I covered my beat was those moments in time when science fiction became science fact. I was interested in those moments starting in the, in the kind of the early 90s. I made a long list of all the sci-fi technologies from the 20th century, and I just kept my eye on them. And every time one kind of crossed that line and actually turned into reality, you know, most of the time I was lucky enough to be there when it happened. So I got kind of an up-close look at the invention of tomorrow today, and... You know, the essays that, that I wrote as a result are, are what comprise Tomorrowland, but the, the kind of the huge picture, when you put them all together, when you read the entire book, and you kind of see where we actually are. It's so much farther into the future than we actually realize, and what's coming is coming so much faster than we realize. And the, the real thing I'm interested in Tomorrowland is it's not just that science fiction is turning into science fact. It's the massively disruptive impact these transformations are having on culture. Would you say this is positive disruption? I think, you know, these are tools, right? They can be used for better or for worse. They're incredibly powerful tools. We've never had greater access to these tools. So, it, you know, it's certainly, you know, you can look at this stuff as, as, I, as I did in, in, in both Abundance and Bold, the books I co-wrote with Peter Diamandis. We looked at these technologies, these, these changes as ways to significantly improve global standards of living over the next two to three decades. So that absolutely becomes possible. Other scarier things also become possible. So I think it is, you know, it is an 
open question at this point which way it rolls. Well, we've got four good examples here. Bionics, mind uploading, genetic engineering, um, and life extension. What are the effects upon our culture and ultimately ourselves, positive and negative? So let's just, let's just look at bionics because it's a really good one. In Tomorrowland, I talk about Major David Roselle, who is the world's first bionic soldier. He has a fully functional bionic ankle that he can, you know, he can, I've watched him basically dash across a busy four-lane street on that bionic ankle, like stopping and jumping over puddles. And I mean, it was, it was a full, like, Walter Payton ballet across the four-lane <laughs> street on that bionic ankle. He didn't, he, we were in conversation, he just did it. He didn't even know uh, he had done it. So really functional. Today, and that's, by the way, that was only a couple years ago. Today, 50% of the human body is replaceable by, by bionics. We've got mind-brain interfaces that allow us to control our real-life bionic limbs with our brains. All this is happening, but that's just replacement parts. We're also, as of 2016, we're going to have strap-on exoskeleton bionics. So say you have a bum knee, you are going to be able to strap on bionics that will not just kind of help your, your, your bum knee work. It will put energy back into the system. It will essentially reinvigorate its like eternal youth, you know, in a strap-on brace. And that's a huge deal. It's a huge deal for a couple of different reasons. And one, kind of at the larger metaphysical level, we, are, we have evolved in a, with a certain way. The major complaint about people getting old is loss of movement, right? Accelerated decrepitude. And our brain is really kind of hardwired to, to, for this downturn. Exoskeleton, strap-on bionics, means we're going to take that out of the equation, right? You are no longer going to lose bodily function as you get older, right? That is going to start changing. And so, you know, people talk about bionics like we're building new bodies, but the impact of that, we're sort of creating new minds. It's going to be a very, very deep impact. Now, that's at a kind of metaphysical, this is who we are in the world level. At a very practical level, right, we've got retirement ages. And one of the reasons, you know, they're set where they're set, some, some of it is, you know, when people are going to die, but some of it is you lose your ability to work, right? You lose use of your body, you can't work. Well, that's going away. So the largest group of people in history are about to kind of kick into senior citizenhood, the boomers, and... You know, we on a certain level need them to remove themselves for, from the economy, and they're not going to do it because they're going to be able to continue to work for a lot longer because of this. So these are really disruptive changes on kind of all ends of the spectrum, good or ill. It's hard to say. We don't know. We're at the front end, but these are big changes. Huge changes and, and quite hopeful for people of our generation because I think we're about the same age. Um, you know, down the pike 20 years from now, we will still be uh, flying down mountains on our skis, thankfully. I don't know, which could be terrible. I mean, it might be a terrible thing. I think it's a good thing, personally. I think it's a good thing, too. Uh, let's talk about mind uploading. Mind uploading is probably the thing that's in the book that's the farthest out. But it's in the book because it's actually it, – it was going on I, – I, that, that was an investigation kind of undertaken in early 2000 for the New York Times magazine. And it was about a project that's still ongoing to basically store ourselves on silicon. Uh, this has been a sci-fi idea for a very, very long time. Can we upload ourselves into computers? Right? Can we store our personalities on computers and hang around forever? And it sounds – Absolutely ridiculous. But what 
these guys realized when they were working on this project, and it was a huge project for an English telephone company. Like, the, like basically the Ma Bell of England was running this project, so it was very legitimate. And they discovered that they could record, the, their idea was if we could record all the sensory inputs, all our sensory inputs, and create a playback device, we would have a first stab at it. Mind you, it's a very diminished version of what our personality is, but their feeling is it would get us closer. All the technology to do that exists today. They were, mm. They're looking for ways to put it together, but nothing in what I just said is not possible already. So that's interesting. Ray Kurzweil has said that he thinks we're going to get to this point by 2045. I don't know if that's going to happen that quickly, but what I do know is all of the world's main religions kind of drive behavior in the here and now with the threat of the hereafter. Right? It's a huge way we shape and steer behavior in this world. So what happens kind of to theological morality in the face of technological immortality? Because that's, you know, it's far out there still, but sometime in the next 50 years, that's a question we're going to start having to grapple with very, 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 very cleanly. And it's, you know, it's coming. It's interesting. Oh, I, I, my mind is spinning. I mean, there are a zillion questions I want to ask you, and we are, are running out of time. But uh, mind uploading, I mean, I, I see very clearly what, what you're sharing, that we, that we have everything available today, and to uh, put it into practice is not that far away. Um, and it does possess a little bit of a scary thought, you know, where, where we could be with this. You know, it's like everything that you've said, you know, you can put it to use for, for good or for evil. And um, I just, uh, I believe in humanity enough to uh, hope that we're going down the right road with, with mind uploading and some of these other f- fabulous things that you discuss in Tomorrowland, which has just been released. Um, thank you for being with us, Stephen Kotler. To learn more, please visit stephencotler.com on Facebook, stephen.kotler.3, and on Twitter, the handle is at Kotler Stephen. And, of course, the Flow Genome Project, you can learn more at flowgenomeproject.com. And um, Rancho de Chihuahua, which is a dog sanctuary in the mountains of New Mexico, you can find out more uh, by visiting there. And one last thing, Stephen, um, how do you hurl down the mountains at high speeds? On a mountain bike? Mountain bikes, running. I, I, you know, gravity and risk is a great flow trigger, and I, and I'm, and I'm wired that way. I really like it. It really, uh, it, it, it's a really good way for me to get into flow. Um, so every opportunity I, I have, I, that's what I'm trying to do. Well, thank you for sharing uh, a piece of yourself with us this morning on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought sold or traded happiness will never invite you to the party it simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion purpose place and meaning thanks for joining us on harvesting happiness talk radio this is lisa cypress cayman and my amazing guests today william murray and stephen kotler wishing you kind thoughts kinder words and the kindest of actions until next time remember happiness is an inside job Happiness is your inside job. And thanks to our producers who make us shine each and every week. We appreciate you. Go out and make it a great day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on Toginet Radio. 
Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week, Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the Toginet Radio Network.